Welcome to Caffeine, Crime and Canines, a podcast brought to you by two girls who love their dogs, love coffee, but most importantly, love true crime. Hello. Hi, how are you going? Good, how are you? Good. What is going on? Oh, not too much. Nothing. Just chilling out. Yeah, me too, actually. Yeah. It's just such, it's like a like sunny blue sky sort of day, but it's cold. It's cold. It's so cold. I don't mind it though. Like as long as the sun's out, I'm happy. Yeah, exactly. How's your week been? Um, what have I done this week? Actually, don't remember. <laughs> really? Like I feel like the week is just gone. Um. So, what have you been up to? I had a huge week at work. I was in four days this week. So even though it's just one extra day, it completely threw me. Yeah. You feel it for sure. Yes. I don't know how we used to do five days in the office. It's insane. <laughs> <laughs> do you reckon you'll ever go back to five days in the office? Not full-time five days. Like I do five no. days, like, do you know what I mean? Like for a week or if I'm needed or whatever, but I don't think I could do full-time five days. Yeah. The travel kills me. Like it's literally that's, two hours a day. That's exactly that. Like if I was like 10, 15 minutes away from work, I'd go in every day. Yeah, same. That's but what I always say to everyone. I'm yeah. like if I could teleport in, I would be there because I love yeah. actually going into the office. Yeah, I agree. Just takes but, up too much of your day. Yeah. It totally does. And you know what? We didn't even know about it before COVID. You know, like you know, but you know. didn't realise how, like, you know, how much you could do in those two hours. Yeah. It's nuts. Crazy, hey? Um, You know what I did watch this week? And I, um, I mean, I just put it on because I was in the middle. I can't, I was doing something. I just thought I'd put it on for, like, background noise and I got so into it. Did you see that Netflix documentary about the Boston Marathon bombings? Yeah, I started it and I was like, you know what, Monkey's going to like this so I better stop and we'll watch it together. So I barely saw it. Like I just watched kind of the start of it and I was like, no, nah, I've got to stop it. Oh, it's really good. Like I got really yeah. into it. I was, as I said to you, I, I had it on in the background and I ended up just sitting on the cat and I was mesmerised by it. It's so interesting mm. how they caught them, everything about it. Like, yeah, because I, I remember it as well. Like it was only yeah, 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, crazy. So, um, yeah, I watched that this week. Vic also got a haircut this week and he looks so freaking cute, Lucky. Like, oh, that's so good. I feel like because it's gotten a little bit colder and he's wearing jumpers again, I just can't get enough of him. <laughs> so funny. Olive looks old at the moment, I reckon. I feel I like Victor's why. face is aged. No, I feel yeah. like their faces do age. They totally do. Like Olive's got all these white hairs in her tail and then she oh. got a groom last week and she just looks all like small and frail or something. I don't know. <laughs> Poor little O. That's so funny. Yes. So I'm thinking we should get started. Yes. But before we get started, I just want to say that this case was requested to us by Ringo. And I've sort of been bullied into covering this case, Lucky. <laughs> well, not really, but in the last few weeks, Ringo has left an anonymous sorry, an anonymous note on my desk and sent me like an anonymous photo of the main guy we're about to discuss from the printer. So it was just like I just received like an email from the printer and it was of this guy. <laughs> 
So I was like, he is hanging for us to cover this. So I'm going to cover it. And I want to say sorry because I actually lied to him this week. He's like, what case are you doing? And I'm like, I don't know. Lockie's covering something because I haven't had time to do a case this week. But I wanted to surprise him. So hopefully it's worth it. And one other yeah, and one other thing, right, so we've got a 90s dress-up party um, at work for the end of financial year, so I'm hoping Ringo brings out his David Bain outfit for the night. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take photos and put them on Insta. Well, we'll see Love it. <laughs> if I can <Yeah>. convince him. <laughs> okay, so let's do this. So today we will be discussing the Bain family murders. What you just heard was an emergency call made by David Bain, the eldest child of the Bain family. So had you heard of this case, Lockie? No, I hadn't, but I have obviously looked into it this week and saw that it's from across the ditch, as they say. Yes! <laughs> I had never heard of it. And honestly, I got really into it as well. So I'm curious to see um, what you think at the end, but let's keep going. <laughs> so the Bain family consisted of Father Robin, Mother Margaret, and children David, Arawa, Len- Laniette, and Stephen. Now, on Monday, the 20th of June, 1994, 22-year-old David Bain returned home from his paper route to find his whole family had been murdered. He called 111 at 7.09am and police arrived at the large semi-derelict property at 7.20am. So David refused to open the door for them. Eventually they managed to enter and found him lying in the fetal position on the floor at the end of his bed crying. Yeah, so just to set the scene a little bit here, this house was filthy. Like you would die, Lockie. I don't know if you've seen photos of the house, but you honestly would lose it. It is disgusting. Yep, there are boxes and junk everywhere. Like it looks like they were hoarders, uh, but there were dirty dishes, there was mould, like oil, there was like oily kitchen walls, you name it. How do people live like that? I have no idea. And apparently people didn't even want to, like, visit the house, like, go over there for coffee. That's how filthy it was. Like, it boggles my mind how people live like that. I know. Like, oh. 
It's insane. And I will definitely post photos as well just so you can get a bit of an idea of how bad this actually was because I'm definitely not over-exaggerating here. (laughs) So after locating David, the police proceeded to search the rest of the house. They discovered blood stains throughout and it didn't take them long to locate the bodies of the other members of the family. So 58-year-old Robin was found in the lounge room. It's like a lounge family sort of area of the house. He had one shot to the head and a 22 caliber rifle with a silencer lay behind, uh, beside him, sorry. There was also, which is I thought was really weird, and I've seen a photo of it, there's like a magazine, you know, that goes like in the gun lying right by his hand. But this magazine thing, it was standing like on its side. The way it's standing, it just looks sort of placed. Like I don't know how he would have like fallen back and I don't know, like it just looks a little bit staged to me, right? Yeah. Anyway, on the computer screen in the room was a typed message and the message said, sorry, you are the only one who deserved to stay. What? And this is 94. So the fact that they even had a computer I thought was, yeah, pretty (laughs) impressive. (laughs) So 18-year-old Laniette was found in her bed under the covers with three bullet wounds to her head. 50-year-old Margaret was also found in bed and she had a single bullet wound to her head. Arua, who was 19, was found in her bedroom. From what I could find, it appears that she was awake at the time of her murder and may have been on her knees begging for her life. I know, right? Multiple shots were fired in her room, but she was only hit once. Lastly, 14-year-old Stephen was found in his bedroom. His room was initially initially missed, sorry, and as it was sort of connected to Margaret's room and it's like police must have thought that that door led to a closet but it actually led into Stephen's room. So Stephen's room was by far the bloodiest and he had clearly put up one hell of a fight. He had multiple gunshot wounds, including one that passed straight through his hand. He also had strangulation marks that looked like someone had sort of tried to strangle him with his T-shirt and he had blood all over him. So as the bodies were being discovered, David began to have a seizure. The police put him in the recovery position and called for an ambulance. When he finally regained consciousness, he told them he had to get to uni as he was going to be late. What? I know. I think that a lot of people say that maybe he was just like, you know, when you're in so much shock, you sort of distance yourself from the actual situation. Like you're a little bit sort of like delusional. Still. I know, right? So at this stage, most people on the scene believe that it was a murder-suicide. So who were the Baines? Robert and Margaret got married in Dunedin. Is that how you pronounce it? I'm not sure if I've yeah, even Dunedin. said it. Yeah, Dunedin. Yeah. Perfect. New Zealand in August of 1969 and welcomed their first son, David, into the world in 1972. During this time, Robin worked as a teacher in a married school and the couple volunteered at their local church where they first met. 
In January 1974, the family of three left New Zealand and relocated to Papua New Guinea. It was like a massive <laughs> so move, freaking right? weird. Yeah. And it's <laughs> random. It's a random as. So Robin was offered a great job as a principal at a teaching training college and he had always wanted to do like missionary work. So I feel like they just thought, let's do it. Instead of moving to the city, they settled into a rural area and this was like a tribal village. Like it wasn't, like there was, it was no city at all. It was literally like bush, you know? Mm. And the family absolutely loved this sort of way of living. Like, you know, obviously by the look of their house, that's why they probably enjoyed it. (laughs) Savage, but so funny. (laughs) Margaret got really into the local lifestyle there, particularly the traditional beliefs regarding spirituality and healing. I feel like she got really into like the supernatural part of it also. Yeah. She began carrying a pendulum. I think this was like a necklace. You know those like jewel necklaces? Because I have to look up. I've heard of it, but I didn't know exactly what it was. Anyway, she started carrying this thing with her everywhere and would dangle it around to help her make decisions, even like when she went shopping. (laughs) Like strange. Yeah. Yeah. So in Papua New Guinea, the Bain family expanded to include three more children. So Arawa was born in 1974, Laniette was born in 1976, and Stephen was born in 1980. In 1990, no, it wasn't 1990, it was in 1988, the Baines moved back to New Zealand and settled into a home at 65 Every Street. So this was in Anderson's Bay, Dunedin. They moved back as they were worried about the rising crime rate in Papua New Guinea. So obviously they just thought, you know, it's time to go back and they wanted like obviously their kids to go um, to schools and things like that. So most of the family struggled with their return to New Zealand. It took Robin three years to find a permanent job as he had fallen behind on the New Zealand curriculum. So eventually he became the principal of a Ta'iri Beach School. I hope I've pronounced that right because I probably have not. Um, But it was a bit of a commute for him to get to work. So he stayed in a caravan on the school grounds during the week and returned home on weekends where he would sleep outside in a caravan. (laughs) Yes. So I imagine – Your principal slept in a caravan on the school. I know. And do you know, because I've heard like different reports, but one in particular was that there was sort of like a house for the principal to stay in, but it wasn't ready yet at the time. So that's why he, do you know what I mean? He was staying until Mm. that place became available. But, yeah, it's really random. This was a tiny school, though, from my understanding. There was only like maybe 30 or 40 students, so it must have been quite rural as well. Yep. But um, as I said, even when he went home, he did not sleep in the house with the rest of his family. He slept outside in the caravan, and I'll tell you why shortly. 
Um, so Robin has been described as gentle, kind, caring, and polite. Although I did see a few reports that at the time of the murders, he had become quite withdrawn and depressed. Yeah. So the children were enrolled in the local schools but were bullied because they couldn't read or write. So I know, right? So Margaret in Papua New Guinea had been homeschooling the children and I feel bad saying this but, Lockie, she was not doing a very good job. Yeah, no. And it's surprising because she had some experience. Apparently she was like a kindergarten teacher in New Zealand. So you'd think she at least had like the basic sort of teaching skills. But, yeah, obviously not. obviously not. Yeah. Although I think that it – I think this – it wasn't because like she didn't have the skills to do it. I think that she just became completely obsessed and devoted to this like new age beliefs of like past lives, channeling and like like interpretation of dreams to the point where – took over her whole life, you know? Yeah. So Robin did not approve of her new lifestyle, but he was tolerant of it. He would just tell people that she was off with the fairies. And and I read this thing and it's so freaking gross, but I think it shows what extent, like, like, do you know what I mean? She believed in this sort of stuff. Apparently, like, she used to drink phlegm and urine to treat her colds. Ew. Her own urine or? I'm, I, don't, I, I mean, so. I have no oh, idea. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But how about if she was, I, don't, I mean, I just said to treat her colds, but who knows what she was giving to her kids, you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. So I think by the time of the murders, Robin had become quite worried about Margaret. But he hadn't sort of told anyone about what was going on, like, in his home life. So Margaret's diaries show she may have been experiencing a mental illness. She would detect Belle in the family house, in her children, and most of all in her husband, Robin. David always seemed to have the least amount of Belle in him. And I know everyone's probably wondering, like, (laughs) what the heck is Belle? So Belle is short for, I don't even know how to pronounce this, Belial? Yeah, Belial. Belial, yeah, and that's the Hebrew name for, like, the devil. So she thought that, like, you know, her house was filled with the devil and, like, sort of Satan and even her children, like, all her family and her children were filled. And, like, when you say Hebrew Hebrew name, like, were they Jewish? Or, like, that no, does I, not make sense to me. No, I don't think so. I'm quite sure they were Catholic from memory. So really, I'm not it's sure. Just off with it. Yeah. And I think I think that obviously, like, them living in Papua New Guinea in sort of, like, with those tribes, maybe she just, that sort of, that's where she got a lot of these beliefs from. You know what I mean? Yeah. So as you can imagine, Margaret's way of thinking was disruptive, like to the whole house and destructive. Like the whole family is living with her beliefs. And I'm quite sure, I mean, I'm not sure how vocal she was of it, but I think that she like made her kids, do you know what I mean, do certain things so, you know, the, they wouldn't be filled with Belle. Now she would not clean 
anything. And it was all about her needs. She expected the kids to do all the cleaning and would blame them for the house being dirty and untidy, saying that it was like they were being selfish and they didn't care for her. And, you know, this is so gross, but I read this thing that the police have talked about putting like, I think it was like drops of eucalyptus in their masks to mask the smell of the house. Well, that's how bad it smelled. Ew. I know. <laughs> Gross. So Margaret has been described as opinionated, difficult, and unusual. She also seemed to be somewhat controlling over especially David. Like David was like her main sort of know, puppet. I don't know the best way to describe him, but, yeah, it's probably the best thing to call him. So one Christmas she spent the whole day in bed, and if you think that's bad, another time she spent six whole weeks in bed and would proudly tell people, like, you know, I've spent six weeks in bed. Like she didn't see it as an issue. Imagine the smell. I know. I know. Oh, my God. So issues were starting to reach boiling point in the marriage. In 1990, Margaret moved out to the caravan that was on their property and she slept in there for six months until it got too cold and then she kicked out Robin like to the caravan. So she went back in the house and told Robin he had to live out there. I know. So it seems as though the couple were separated, but it was definitely like an unusual sort of situation. Robin didn't want to break up his family and Margaret knew that if they were to divorce, her dream of building a massive six to seven bedroom refuge sort of sanctuary would never happen as Robin was the main provider, even though he didn't live in the house. So she pretty much like needed the money you know and yep you heard that right margaret and david which is the eldest son remember were planning on building this sanctuary where people who wanted to escape the outside world could come and stay with them every child was going to have their own bedroom with margaret and david having the main two bedrooms of the house and sharing an ensuite that's weird yeah it's so weird and there are also conflicting statements on whether robin would even get a room in this house <laughs> poor robin i know and he's the one paying for it like what the heck <laughs> so let me tell you about david as i mentioned earlier he really struggled with the move back to new zealand but in that time david did find a choir group where he seemed to fit in quite well he was also really impressive in the choir. So obviously, do you know what I mean? Because he's good at it, I guess, like, that helps. <laughs> he had a talent for music and theatre and would sing in plays and school productions. After high school, he attempted to study zoology. <laughs> I don't know why I find that so funny. But anyway, with the aim of becoming like a vet or a vet nurse, but he failed and dropped out. He went on the dole and got a part-time job delivering morning papers, spending the rest of his day working on the house and the garden in preparation for, like, the big build. So his uncle had offered him a job which he turned down because he'd rather 
like spend his time working on the house. Like he was committed to this project, you know. So they were building it themselves. No, I feel I don't. They weren't going to build it themselves, but I think that from my understanding, he was doing like garden work because I know there's this story that I heard that apparently, like I don't know, he had done. I don't know if it was weeding or he'd done like all this garden work whatever that means and apparently Robin came home and put soil where he was working and like they got into a fight about it like just weird stuff right so but I think the property was quite big so I guess um there was a lot of things to do in preparation for like them to knock down the house and rebuild so in 1994 David enrolled to study music and classics at like a New Zealand university part-time at this time, you know what else I found crazy? That David had a girlfriend. But, you yeah. know, they had never kissed. That's a bit weird, right? <laughs> Very. <laughs> anyway, most reports claim that David did not like or get along with his father. Like he just hated him, right? They had just gotten into a fight that weekend about this some chainsaw that they had, right? Apparently Robin had taken it to the school when David needed it and David wanted him to bring it back. He was also mad at Robin, which is what I was telling you earlier, for dumping soil on a part of the garden that he was working on. So whatever that means, like, I don't even know, Lockie. (laughs) David was extremely close with his mother. Remember I was telling you about them sharing that ensuite? It seems as though his life sort of revolved around her and he always tried really hard to please her. He thought of himself as the man of the house and was very controlling over his siblings being uptight, like even like with what they were doing, keeping tabs on them. It's just insane, you know. So Margaret had told people that she had to speak to David about how he was treating his siblings as it was becoming inappropriate. So Arawa, the eldest of the Bain daughters, thrived, excelling in her schoolwork. This is on their return back from Papua New Guinea. She was the head school girl and was popular with a large group of friends At the time of her murder, she was in her second year at Teachers College. She still lived at the family home but babysat and worked at a cafe hoping to move out and flat with friends in the near future. So Arawa had told friends David would keep tabs on her and there are reports that she found David creepy. But others say that they were actually quite close. So I guess, I mean, I guess it could be a bit of both, you know. Yeah. So like David, Laniette struggled when she first moved back to New Zealand. She dropped out of school and moved out of the family home to flat with friends. Her parents refused to sign the necessary paperwork for her to receive the doll, so she turned to freelance escorting for an income. Why could David go on the doll but she couldn't? I don't know. I don't know if it's something to do with because she she left school. Like, I don't know, and they were sort of maybe trying to teach her a lesson. I actually don't know. I thought it was pretty harsh as well. Yeah. So it seems... 
as though she was involved with like this shady man named Dean. So this guy, he had given her like a phone for her to work like as an escort, but then he started threatening her, telling her she would tell, sorry, he would tell her parents if she didn't sleep with him once a week. So Laniette was the closest out of all the children uh, with her father, Robin, and she began living with him at the school hoping to stop escorting. This is around the same time she was murdered. So the weekend Laniette was murdered, she had told a friend that she had called a family meeting to tell them about her sex work. And wait for it. She also said she wanted to tell the family about the incestuous relationship she was having with Robin. No. Yeah. And apparently she told a few people that, like, she was sleeping with her dad. I I mean, I don't even know the best way to say it, but whatever was like going on there and some people say that like one of her friends say says that she knew about this but can't believe that Laniette moved in with him like because she didn't like him and others say that Laniette loved her father so there's like I don't know there's conflicting statements there this obviously does strengthen the murder suicide theory yeah But some people believe that Laniette was a compulsive liar as she had also told people she had had a child in Papua New Guinea, like when she was young, Uh, but these claims were never confirmed. So Laniette had also mentioned that she was going home that weekend because David wanted to see the whole family, but she had no idea why. The only information I could find on Stephen, the youngest of the Bain family, was that he was lively and cheerful. He was only just beginning to develop his musical talent by playing the trumpet in the school band. He had a wide circle of friends and approached everything he did with great enthusiasm. There is also a bit of talk about how he had a bit of a longing for a father figure as Robin was barely around. So now that we know a little bit about the family, let's return back to the day of and after the murders. So although the scene originally looked like a straightforward murder-suicide, police started questioning a lot of the scene and the evidence. Before you go ahead, when mm-hmm. they thought murder suicide, who was the mur- like who was the person murdering and then committed suicide? Oh, yes. Sorry, so it was the father. So Robin, because remember he was found with that the gun right next to him. Okay. So they and think sort he of, killed everyone, shot himself. Yeah. Yep, exactly right. And don't forget there was a note on that computer in the same room where they found Robin. And at the time, David was out on a, like, delivering papers and he had been seen out delivering papers. And there's also reports that um, a lady, like, this lady, right, this elderly woman had told him, like, don't come up to my door to give me the paper because it will set my dog off. And that particular morning he did. So she actually heard him go to her door. But the strange thing about that is, Lockie, that he had never done that in like over a year. Like he had never gone to the door. That was the only time he had gone to her door to deliver the paper since she had told him. So that's just like a little fun fact. That's good, 
Yeah. So the first thing that the police found odd was that Robin was right-handed, but he had shot himself with his left hand on the left-hand side temple, which is just odd. Like it's just awkward, you know? Yeah. So blood was found on Robin, but it was only his own blood, even though it was clear that the killer got into a physical fight with Stephen and spread Stephen's blood all around the house. Not to mention Robin didn't really have any sort of injuries or scratches on him from the fight that would have taken place. Yeah. There were bloody footprints around the house, but Robin's socks were clean and he was wearing shoes. So Dave, weird, yeah? So David had actually put the washing on when he returned home from his paper route that morning and happened to wash the green jersey that the killer was wearing at the time of the murders. And I think they know it was this green jersey as they found, I think they found like the hair from the jersey mixed in with some blood. So they know that the the killer was wearing this particular jersey. And I'm pretty sure, sorry, this jersey also belonged to one of the girls. It might have been Arawa, the eldest. Um, So it wasn't David's jersey and it wasn't Robin's jersey. So this would mean that after Robin committed the murders, he had a shower because, remember, there was no blood on him. He got changed into random tatty clothes and put on a woolly hat, put his bloody clothes in the washing basket just to kill himself soon after. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't. And, I mean, some of the arguments sort of defending this particular action is that he got out of, you know, these clothes, like the clothes with his family's blood on them to dress in something better, like for when he met his maker. But the clothes he put on were so freaking random. Like I can't even tell. It was like random shit thrown on and like a woolly hat. Like it's not like he put on like a suit and a nice shirt or anything like that. It was random stuff, you know. It's like stuff you put on uh, like when it's freezing and you need like lots of layers. Like it's not nice clothes. Yeah. So that morning Robin collected the paper from the mailbox because obviously they found it in the house and then made his way into the house. The autopsy found that Robin had a full bladder, meaning He committed all, like if he committed the murders, he did it all with a full bladder. So he literally didn't wee that morning. (laughs) And for like an older man, I feel like, like even me, do you know what I mean? Like I feel like it's quite normal. First thing you do is wee, like in the morning. Yeah. So police discovered that there was a 20-minute gap in David's account of events. He initially... Why can I never say that word? He initially. <laughs> you say it for me. Initially. initially. <laughs> All right, thank you, Lucky. Stated that he arrived home between, I think it was like 6.45 a.m. to 6.50 a.m. and put on some washing. And this is just strange because how the heck did he not see the bloody jersey? You know what I mean? But he washed that jersey. Anyway, so he puts the washing on and then he discovers his mother's body in her bed. 
He runs straight to the lounge to find his father's body. And if this all happened at around like, let's say, 6.50 a.m., why did he only call for help at 7.09 a.m.? Yeah. So that's a long Dave, time, 19 minutes. Yeah. And that's even like depending on when he actually got home because, and this is the thing, there is some, you know, some people say that he was seen around 6.45, like, do you know what I mean, like delivering the papers, but most accounts or most of the timelines put him home at 6.50 the latest. Yeah. So David later admitted that he had been experiencing episodes of like um, bunnies spacing out. You know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. This, this is what he says was happening, right? And this was causing time to move quickly for him. He also gave police an example that it had happened nine days before at the, is this a symphony like orchestra? What is this thing? Symphonia. Yeah, is that yeah, like I a, think it, Yeah, I think it's like a, a music thing. Yeah, 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 that's what I thought. Um, anyway, and his friends sort of back, do back up this this thing that he was spacing out. Um, like they go on and tell a story that I think everyone was clapping and he was sort of stand, sitting there or zoned out or something. But, um, yeah, so this apparently happened nine days before and he had been experiencing these, these things of, you know, these – yeah, episodes, exactly right. Um, so David's original statement to police that he had only seen his parents and not his siblings contradicted his 111 call to emergency where in the call, as you heard, he clearly says they're all dead. Yeah. David did eventually recover memories of going around the house and finding his siblings and hearing one of the things he says is when he started to recover these memories is that he heard Laniette like gurgling yeah right but experts say that this is only possible if he were the killer because of I don't know I think that I think she was shot from memory three times and maybe if it was the first shot she may have still been able to like gurgle there might may have been a noise but by the third shot there is no way there'd be any gurgling going on yeah yeah so Stephen's blood spots were discovered on David's socks and clothing which raised suspicion amongst police they also suspected that David had faked that seizure remember I was telling you that he had when they were finding the bodies yeah as his body movements appeared to be like coordinated and in sync, oh. right? And I've been able to tell if it was a real seizure. Well, no, this is so. Like, I, I mean, I'm, like, don't they check your like your brain waves and shit like that? I'm not sure to tell you the truth. I think the paramedics thought that he had sort of faked it as well, um, because but obviously by the time they got there, maybe got him to the hospital to run these tests, he was sort of conscious and back to normal. Yeah. But, uh, and do you know what? I remember hearing um, on the pod, actually, and do you know what? I was going to say this at the start of the episode. Everyone, a lot of the info from today's um, episode comes from 
a podcast called Black Hands. It's an amazing podcast about the case. But I'm quite sure in it I remember hearing one of the – it was either a policeman or a paramedic talks about – I think if you run your hand – somewhere on the face it might be across the eyelashes or something you get like your eyes flutter if you're conscious and his eyes flooded so that's how why they thought he was faking it so there is a way to tell and they thought at the time that he was faking it so yeah okay anyway david's bloody fingerprints were found on the gun And, I mean, this isn't too surprising because that gun actually belonged to him. Yeah. But the fingerprints are sort of fresh and he tries to claim that they're – obviously it's his gun so it makes sense, but it's probably like animal blood from when he's gone shooting. So a glass lens was discovered in Stephen's room, which is believed to have come loose during the struggle with the killer who was wearing a pair of glasses. So the glasses belonged to Margaret, but the frames were discovered in David's room. And another just like strange, I don't know if you want to call it coincidence or something, He had recently broken his glasses and Margaret had the closest prescription to like what he wore. So it makes sense that David was wearing them at the time of the murders. Yeah, okay. David also had bruises and scratches on his body, which he assumed like when police sort of questioned him about like the bruising, he said it was from when the police put him in that recovery position like because of the seizure. He's coming up with a lot of excuses. I I know. And you know what? Some of them are a bit smart though. I'm not going to lie. But, like, I feel like if, if your family had just died and people were asking me stuff like that, I'd be like, I don't know. Yeah, I don't think I yeah, would totally. be able to come up with a full response. Yeah, so true. So David's behaviour was just as strange. In the days after the murders, he stayed with his auntie who described him as lacking emotion. He wanted to be fully in charge and had already started planning like his family's funerals. He had specific requests for each family member. He wanted his parents to be cremated and his siblings to be buried. He also, I know, he also wanted the families to, like, sorry, he also wanted the funerals to be more of like a celebration with lots of music and had ideas about which music to play for each person. He wanted to sing at the funerals and had already picked out their clothes, including a super bra for one of his sisters. (sighs) What the heck? That's weird. Isn't it? So on the Tuesday evening after reading the day's paper, so this is the day after the murders, right, he had a breakdown and his auntie recalls, quote, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you what she says, right, he started to speak in a really slow, deliberate way. His words were almost as though they were being dragged out of him. He started saying black hands and that they were taking him away, black hand, and just 
repeated this over and over, black hands dying, black hands taking them away. It's just like Schindler's List, black hands taking them away, dying, dying, everyone's dying. And as he was, I don't know, doing this, apparently like he was spitting all over the place and his voice sort of changed. How creepy. So David was arrested on day four of the investigation and charged with five counts of murder. David to this day has maintained his innocence. So the Crown claimed at trial that David shot his mother, two sisters and brother before leaving for his paper run. I think they assume that he left earlier than usual and most likely put the load of washing before on before he left. Yeah. When he returned, he turned on the computer to type that note, remember, that was found, and then lay in wait for his father, like in that family room behind this green velvet curtain. And there is that house, like when you see the photos, you'll lose it, but there's like, curtains in the doorways like it's just weird like so strange I don't even know how to describe it and the reason why they think he lay in wait behind this green velvet curtain is because there was a shell behind the curtain and how the heck would that have got there if his father had sort of pulled the trigger on the other side of the curtain yeah so anyway, he lay in wait in this room behind this curtain and then he shot his father when he was maybe in the either doing, I think they said that he might have been like kneeling and praying, like it might have been part of his routine and that's why like obviously David knew Robin's routine and knew that's the position he usually took in the mornings. The one thing that I can't understand is that if David was responsible, why did he kill his mum? You know, if they had this big grand plan, you know yeah, I mean? and, yeah, and I completely agree. But you know what? Remember, I told you that leading in, like, just like days before the murders, Margaret was going to speak with him about the way he was treating the rest of the family, and as in his siblings. So, and nobody actually knew what was going on. And there's so many different theories out there regarding um, why he would have killed his mum as well. Like, obviously, maybe she wasn't on board with him killing the whole family. It might even be that maybe she was going to give Robin like a bedroom in the house and David didn't want that because obviously David thinks he's the man of the house. There are other reports that maybe they actually decided to go through and get the divorce, which means that this sanctuary would not be able to go ahead. So there's all different theories, but nobody actually knows what the heck happened. Yeah. So something that I just found nuts is, and I just wanted to quickly tell you this story about, so apparently David's friend came forward, right, and said that David had like this massive crush on this girl that lived across the road from him and he told his friend, like, I could have, like, I could rape her and no one would know, right? Yeah, and he said that because he used to see her running in the morning and he said, like, what I'd do is I'd deliver the papers early, right, and make sure I was seen on my paper route and then I'd rape her and then, do you know what I mean, go back and deliver 
the rest of the papers and he had a little book next to his bed and he had jotted down the certain times when he saw people, like when they were out. And this totally, I'm sorry, but this, doesn't this remind you of um, the case we did with the boys the other day? Remember how he did something similar and he's like with the movie, like the alibi, and he yeah. used it for the car? Do you remember? Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so it like, yeah, as I said, a friend came forward. Obviously this is like can't be confirmed but very interesting. Yeah. So in May 1995, he was convicted on all five counts of murder. And he was sentenced to mandatory life, a mandatory, sorry, life sentence with a 16-year non-parole period. Now, for many years, former all-black rugby player, this guy named Joe Karam, campaigned for David Bain's convictions to be overturned. He visited him in jail like over 200 times and he's written books about him and has spent like a shitload of money uh, working on David's defence. That's weird. I know. And apparently he had just seen this article in the newspaper regarding this case and just became sort of like obsessed with it. So in 2004, Three, the New Zealand Court of Appeal did not overturn the convictions, but in 2007, David's legal team, including Joe, argued before the Privy Council in London that the convictions should be squashed based on nine arguments. So two of the main arguments focused on the mental state of David's father, Robin, who, remember, had a strained relationship with his wife, Margaret. And the other, like, thing that they focused on were the claims that Laniette was going home to tell the family her and Robin, oh, sorry, I should say Laniette was going to tell the family that Robin had been sexually abusing her. Yeah. So the Privy Council considered this information and concluded that a, quote, substantial miscarriage of justice had occurred and this ruling led to a retrial in 2009. Wow. So in the second trial, David was found not guilty and in this trial the defence tried to prove that, like, obviously they went with the fact that uh, it was Robin that, committed the murders and they tried to do this by proving so there were five bloody sock prints that were found in the house and these weren't visible to the naked eye but lit up when they were sprayed with you know aluminum or luminal however you say it anyway so in the first trial they just like there was sort of no real mention like everyone knew about these footprints but I think they just assumed that they were David's because remember he had bloody socks on and when he was going around the house like just sort of made sense but in this trial they try to say these aren't David's like footprints these are Robin's footprints and the way they did this is because apparently that this particular footprint measured at 280 millimeters long 
and David's foot measured at 300 millimetres long, meaning they couldn't be his because they did like experiments where they dipped socks in pig's blood and walked around with them. And because like the blood or the footprint was soaking in blood, they expanded. They can't get smaller. Does that make sense? Yeah. But it's stupid. And I think it's stupid because if like the actual sock prints – one, like they weren't soaked in blood. You know what I mean? And who yeah. knows how he was walking. Like I just find this ridiculous, but it really like helped his case. Mm. So I think and obviously the jury thought that there's sort of like no other scenario. If if they are Robin's footprints, there's no other scenario that Robin couldn't be the killer, if that makes sense. Yeah. And do you know something I found crazy? So this was all done right, but they did it without the camp, uh, the carpet samples because, you know, the house was pulled down, like they tore the house down three weeks after the murder. So they lost so much evidence after they pulled it down because they never cut out, like, the carpet samples of these bloody foot, uh, footprints. Anyway, another thing that was argued at this trial was the time of the computer, the time, sorry, the computer was switched on as it was switched on at, let's just say, 6.42 a.m. But David was last, like, seen at, on his paper route at 6.45 a.m. So it couldn't have been David that switched on the computer. It would have had to have been Robin. Okay. So David married a school teacher named Liz Davies and the couple have two children together. David has since changed his name to William David Cullen Davies and I cannot believe this, Lockie, he's relocated to Australia. From what I could find, but I don't know where, but how crazy. I wonder where. Same. And honestly, there is so much more information uh, regarding this case. Like there's so much more evidence, there's so much more theories. Um, I just sort of put in what I thought was the most interesting um, to me. Yeah. There are also like recent or more recent reports written by judges and David's um, application for compensation. So if you are really like, like into this case, I would highly recommend, as I said, uh, listening to Black Hands, the podcast. Interesting. And now, Lucky, I would love to ask you, what do you think? It's got to be him. Yeah. It's got to be. I was hoping you were going to say no because I've written, I didn't send this to you, but I did write a little blurb on how I was going to get back to you about, do you know what I mean? That it, it has to be him. It doesn't make because- sense. If it was the dad, why would you keep David alive? Because he sounded like the shittest kid. Exactly. Exactly. And you know what? So if it was Robin, the dad, this what I like as in the story that would have been like, tell me how this makes sense. So he would have gotten up in the morning, put on his daughter's green jumper, went out, got the newspaper, then went inside the house. He has not weed yet, so he's got a full bladder. He's gone to David's room and found a trigger, like he found the trigger lock key for the gun. And it was hidden in this like little knick-knack jar, which David has said no one knew where the heck this, you know, key was kept. But obviously he's he's somehow found it. Then he's got so he's gotten his gun 
And I didn't say this in the actual, like when we're going through the case, but he's also put on David's opera gloves because the killer was wearing David's opera gloves when he committed the murder, right? And then he's walked around the house, killed his whole family, gone, had a shower, changed out of his clothes, typed a note saying, like to his the only son that he doesn't even like that you are the only one who deserved to stay and the the actual like he's an English major and the note doesn't even make sense because it's like a weird tense, um, and then like killed himself doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't make sense at all. So yes, gotta be him. So Ringo did ask me, do I think he did it? I do think he did it, and Lucky thinks he's done it as well. So yeah, definitely. And that is this week's case. Yeah. (laughs) Same. It's nuts and it's nuts that he's in Australia. So, yeah. Yeah. So if you have a case you want us to cover, send us a message on Instagram. Our Instagram handle is at Caffeine Crime and Canines. And until next week. Until next week. Bye. Bye.